So if you guys will look at uh, page 5, page 5 under the first tab in your notebooks. And the reason there are three tabs is because there are three sections to our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. The first section we're in now is a survey of the Bible. And then the second section will be how to interpret the Bible. And then the third and final section will be applying the Bible. So survey, interpretation, and application. And you see at the top of page 5, we're in the second 2,000 years, part 1. So the the Old Testament, first part of your Bible, is covers 4,000 years of history. And the first 2,000 of those 4,000 years is covered in the first 11 chapters of the first book. And then after that, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, you start this second 2,000 years. And we're in part one of that 2,000 years because the bulk of your Old Testament is... Uh, is devoted to covering the history of those 2,000 years, those two millennia. And so we have really three parts to it, part one, part two, and part three. Now, how did we get to this portion of the history of the Old Testament? Let me briefly review that, and then we'll pick up where we've left off. But in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to focus in on a single individual whose lineage is going to be the people through whom God is going to accomplish his purpose. Now, what is his purpose? His purpose is the solution to the problem of sin. The problem of sin is introduced in the third chapter of of the Bible, and God in that third chapter gives us a hint as to how he's going to solve it. When God is meeting out consequences to the man, the woman, the serpent, all of the participants in this first sin, he says to the serpent that I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And you are going to bruise the heel of the one who's going to come through the seed of the woman, but he, this one who will be born of woman in the future, will crush your head. And so the and so the solution to the problem of sin is going to come through a human being through uh, the line of, uh, through human lineage. And God begins to trace the, the particular line through whom the solution is going to come, starting with the, the first sons of the first couple, Cain and Abel. And Cain murders Abel. And God says at the end of chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, that I'm giving you a son to replace Abel. That son's name was Seth. And in chapter 5 of Genesis, you have the ancestry of this son, Seth. And one of the descendants of Seth is a guy named Noah. We didn't cover hardly anything about Noah because in a few weeks, I'm going to cover Noah in our first hour on Sunday mornings. So if you care to know about Noah and the flood and all of that stuff, you've got to show up on Sunday mornings at 930 uh, in a couple of weeks. In the intervening few weeks, you're still welcome to show up on Sundays at, uh, at 930 as, w- as well. But Noah then is this uh, ancestor of uh, this descendant of, of Seth through whom God focuses. And in fact, it's Noah and his, his family, Noah and seven others, uh, Noah's wife and then his three sons and their wives. Those three sons are Ham and Shem and Japheth. And God begins to narrow down the focus of the solution uh, in the ancestry of, of Shem. And one of the Shemites uh, is a man named Terah. And at the end of Genesis chapter uh, 11, you find Terah mentioned. And one of Terah's, in fact, Terah's son is a man named Abraham. 
And that ends the first 2,000 years of the 4,000-year history that's given in the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, and with this man Abraham, we start the second 2,000 years. And God's focus now is on Abraham and a covenant that he made with Abraham that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he says, I'm going to give you a seed, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land. So those three things. A seed, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I'm going to give you a land. Now, that seed we see happening through the descendants of, of Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Through the story at the end of the first book of the Bible uh, that's centered on Joseph, one of those 12 sons, the, uh, the, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, are in Egypt. And they spend 430 years in slavery in Egypt, but they become a mighty nation. And ultimately, by God's, by God's mighty hand, they are delivered from the clutches of Pharaoh under the leadership of, of Moses. And Moses is to lead them now into the land. So, remember now, God promised three things. I'll give you a seed, I will make you a great nation, and I'll give you a land. The seed piece is happening in big numbers. In fact, when they leave, uh, when they leave, uh, when they leave Egypt, there are 1.2 million adults. 1.2 million adults. And I told you a few weeks ago we know that because there's a book in your Bible called Numbers, and it keeps track of this stuff. And Numbers says here's the number that came out adult men who came out of Egypt. Numbers chapter one and verse 45 says there were 603,550 adult men. And if these men had wives, as they undoubtedly did, that's where you get the 1.2. And then uh, children, you've got upwards of 2 million people who are in the wilderness being led out of Egypt by, by Moses. And so uh, God has multiplied the seed, but now he is going to make them a nation and he's going to give them a land. And the making of the nation happens early on after they leave Egypt because, page 5 now, in your notes, Moses led the Exodus, you see number 2 there, but number 3, Israel received the law and the plans for the tabernacle. So Israel receives the law that the nation is going to be uh, ruled by. And so God is fulfilling this promise to Abraham of a seed, but also making you a nation, and then there's the land peace. And God had told Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And now, after these hundreds of years later, under the leadership of Moses, God is bringing them out of Egypt and into the land that he promised to Abraham. And you remember the story that God told them to go in and take the land. Uh, and so they sent spies in to look at the land to see if this was an opportune time to do the will of God. Now just ponder that for a moment. <laughs> God says go in and take the land and they go, well let's see what's there first. You know, there I mean there might be there might be ferocious people there. And so, you know, God, you know, I know you told us to do this, but they might be able to take us. <laughs> and indeed, uh, they go, twelve of them. And ten of them come back and say, there's no way we're going in there. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can, we can do this. More importantly, God can, God can do this. 
But in faithlessness, in unbelief, they determined to follow the ten. We're not going in. And as a result of the 40 days that they delayed in obeying God to go into the land, then God says in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34, Numbers 14, 34, you will wander in the wilderness. One year for every day you disobeyed me. So for your 40 days, you're going to get 40 years. And that's why they wandered for 40 years in in the wilderness. But prior to that wandering, God gave them the law and he gave them plans for the tabernacle. Now, I discussed the law last week. I'd like to talk about uh, plans for the the tabernacle in in just a a moment. But uh, remember that when God appeared to Moses initially and he said, Moses, I want you to... Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember all that? And Moses had all the excuses as to why we I can't do this. Get somebody else. There's my brother. There's all kinds of people. And 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 he says, and, and by the way, who am I supposed to say sent me? When I go confront Pharaoh, who should I say? And God says, I am. Uh, tell Pharaoh, uh, I am that I am. And I am has, has sent you. Um I just want to kick this dog before I move on. I always want to kick this every time I teach this. God says there, reveals to Moses, I am. I am the self-existent one. I mentioned to you last week that his very personal name, Yahweh, or anglicized to Jehovah, it emphasizes the self-existence that God that God is. So this I am idea is very important. Last week I gave you seven sayings that Jesus gave in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the gate to the the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. And all of these, he's identifying himself as God. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, He's making a statement of deity, and that's why they picked up stones to to kill him, because that was blasphemy in their in their ears. Now, what if you had a T here's the dog I want to kick. What if you had a TV preacher? Let me just stop there with TV preacher. Speaking of dogs to kick. Okay. Uh, if if you we should do an exercise like this sometime. Just you don't put your name on it, I'll just give you a blank sheet of paper, and you just write in your favorite. TV preacher. And I would be willing to wager that 90%, if not more, of the names you put on there are heretical. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but for most of the people that are on, they're teaching things contrary to Scripture, most. And you say, wow, that's a seriously strong statement. Um, if you've got cable and you've got the Trinity Broadcasting Network, then you, you know, use whatever mechanism you have to like just block that. Okay, I mean, block that like obscene material. Now, just to make the point, give you an example. But this is just one example that could be that could be made. You all know who Kenneth Copeland is. So Kenneth Copeland. Now, so let me give you a quote now related to the whole Jesus saying. Before Abraham was, I am. The quote, Kenneth Copeland. Jesus said, I am. And bless God, I am too. 
Now, what's he, what's he saying there? And you say, uh, well, he must not mean. No, he really does. He really does mean and teach that we are little gods. And there are all sorts of offshoots of Kenneth Copeland out there, who himself is an offshoot of a guy named Kenneth Hagin, who's now dead. But all of these guys taught this little deity blasphemy. And they're all over the airwaves, and they're all over Trinity Broadcasting. And that's just one example. I mean, I've got a, a book on my shelf. If you want to borrow it, just in case you need proof, okay? It's called The Agony of Deceit. <laughs> and, it, and it documents the things that these guys teach. So it is as bad as I say. Uh, and, and, I, and I need to do this from time to time, both on Sundays and then our midweek classes, because thankfully our church has a lot of people who are relatively new in the Lord and to whom the Bible is new, and that's why we offer classes called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. That's a beautiful thing that we have folks to whom it's new and we get a chance to teach you. But because it's new, it also means all of these faces and all of these names and all of these teachers are new as well. And you don't have any idea, some of you, as to which are good and which are not. So I'm just telling you, most of the TV guys are not, okay? Uh, and most of the radio guys as, as well. And if you want the book, then I'll be happy to, I'll be happy to share that with you. All right. Uh, another book that documents that stuff is called Christianity and Chaos. Christianity and Chaos. And I have that book for you to borrow, too, if you want more proof. All right. I feel much better having kicked the dog. Now let's uh, move on. I'm page five. Where God gives the law and the plans for the tabernacle. And I've spoken about the law last week in some detail. But I want to talk about this ark now a bit. The ark. Now, when you read that God gave them the ark, you might confuse that with like Noah's ark. And they are not the same thing. So Noah's ark was a boat. And uh, this particular ark is a box. And it's, uh, it's a box in which uh, was held the uh, tablets of stone on which God gave the uh, Ten Commandments and also the staff of, of Moses and Aaron that they used when they confronted uh, Pharaoh. And it was uh, a sacred, set-apart piece of furniture for the tabernacle. So there's the ark and there's the, the tabernacle. Now the ark, this box, had atop it a gold uh, lid. And that gold lid was called the mercy seat. So here you've got this sacred piece of furniture that goes in a particular place in the tabernacle. I'll talk about that place in a moment. But it's a, a box with the, the golden lid. And then on the lid is carved two cherubim, two angels above it. And so you have this sacred piece of furniture, golden lid, called the, the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest is able to go into the place where the ark, this box, is located. And he sprinkles blood upon the mercy seat for the sins of himself. That's important, by the way, because the high priest is a sinner himself. Back in those days, it would be really cool if a high priest came along who's not a sinner. And that's in anticipation of Jesus, the high priest who has no sin, to atone for himself. 
And yet the high priest goes and sprinkles blood for his sins and the sins of the nation. And only the high priest can go in, and he can only do that once a year. Now, why is that? Because sin is such that it has separated man from a holy God. And God is giving this, this one opportunity uh, for uh, the Day of Atonement once a year. But throughout the year, God had, in the law gave provision for sacrifices to be made. Which brings us then to the, the, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle itself uh, was really a tent. The walls were uh, such that they could be staked out and put up and they could be taken down. And that's because God gave this uh, at the beginning of their wilderness wandering. For 40 years, they would set it up and they would tear it down, going to different, going to different uh, locations. Now, how large was it? It was uh, 150 feet long. So that's about, not about, that's exactly half of a football field. So that's from the zero to the 50-yard line. 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and the walls are 15 feet high. And within that, 150 by 75 by 15, uh, tent walls, then there's particular furniture. As you go in, uh, you find an altar. very first thing is an altar upon which sacrifice will be made. And then just beyond that is a, is a basin of, of water to be, to be cleansed. And then uh, further, further along is a section called the holy place. And within the, the holy place, there is a, a table of, of bread, the bread of the presence it's called. There's a golden lampstand, an altar of incense. And then there's a curtain in the holy place that separates it from the most holy place. And in the most holy place is the box that is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark, just to get your attention, is about trying to find that. It's about trying to find the, the Ark. And in my, in my own understanding that, uh, of eschatology, that is what the Bible teaches about end times, uh, the temple, which was to be a permanent location, replicated off of the tabernacle, but the temple will be rebuilt. And in order for the most holy place to be complete, then the ark will need to be there so that the ark, the raiders will find it <laughs> at some point. Okay. So you have what's called the millennial temple in the in the kingdom uh, to to come. So that's uh, the tabernacle, or sometimes called the tent of meeting. And I'd like to just say then a few things about that as it then relates to to us and relates to what we now know about about Christ as being this high priest who does not need to offer sacrifice for for himself and the mercy seat and all of that. In Romans chapter 3, if you care to jot it down, Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, uh, verses 25 and 26. The Bible says God presented him, that is Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. And some translations have this uh, big word instead of sacrifice of atonement, that's big enough, but they have the word propitiation. And the idea is this is the place where the anger of God towards sin is 
uh, is satisfied. And God presented Jesus to be this place where that happens. Now, the place where that happened in the first part of your Bible was in once a year in the in the most holy place on the lid called the mercy seat. And in Romans 3, 25 and 26, the Bible is teaching us that Jesus has become our mercy seat, our propitiation, where the anger of God is satisfied against sin. 1 John 2 and verse 2. 1 John 2, 2 says similarly that Jesus is our sacrifice of atonement for for our sins. Now, so that was that most holy compartment in the tabernacle, the most holy place where the ark was and the mercy seat. That was the place where sin was atoned for. Christ in now is the one through whom sin is atoned for and sin is covered. But it was also the place where God met with man. It was in the most holy place and the tabernacle. And the Bible teaches in your New Testament that God meets with man in the person of Jesus. So Jesus is the tabernacle. Now, why do I say that? I say it because of passages like uh, Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9. Which says, in him dwells or lives. All the fullness of God in bodily form. And the word that's translated dwells or or lives is in him is God's tent pitched. Lives or dwells. So the, the tent is pitched in the body of Jesus where God meets with man just like the tent of meeting the tabernacle was the place where God met with man. That's Colossians 2 9. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John 1 14 says, well, John 1 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So just put on hold for a minute. Why Word? Uh, in fact, put, put that on hold for several months, so I'll get to that later. <laughs> but whoever the Word is, he's God. In the beginning was the Word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14, that's John 1, 1, but John 1, 14 then says, and the word, this one who was God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Again, this idea, and lived among us and pitched his tent among us. So Jesus is not only the mercy seat for us, but Jesus is... The meeting place between God and man. In fact, he is the God, the God-man. Further, with regard to the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, remember I said when you enter it, the first piece of furniture that you see is an altar where sacrifice is made. And as you read through the first part of your Bible and the law, God gives all kinds of instructions about a number of different kinds of sacrifices that need to be made for sin. So over and over, sacrifice is being made and animals are being killed and blood is being spilt for for sin. And then you come to Jesus. 
And all of this stuff is pointing to Jesus. So when John sees Jesus, John the Baptist sees Jesus in, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, John 1, 29. He sees him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now why the Lamb of God? Because there have been all these lambs that have been slain. But now here's the Lamb of God. And he says, who takes away the sin of the world. So all the other sacrifices are pointing to this one ultimate sacrifice. All of the stuff in the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, they're all pointing to Christ. And when you go to the book of Hebrews in your New Testament, it puts that all together. And it talks about, and it, and it and this is, the, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than all that. That's the theme. <laughs> Christ is a better prophet than those prophets. Christ is a better priest than those priests. And Christ is a better sacrifice than those sacrifices. That's the book of Hebrews in your New Testament. And in fact, the book of Hebrews says several times, that unlike the priests who would offer sacrifices over and over, not only for the sins of others, but for their own sins as well, this priest offered sacrifice once for all. So the one sacrifice, because it's the sacrifice of one who is sinless, God who became man, now that one sacrifice takes away the sin of the world. And if that sacrifice is applied to you, then you no longer have any other sacrifice that needs to be made. Now, that means a few practical things. One, if you uh, build an auditorium that you're going to use as a worship center for a church to gather, like we did here, and you're deciding how the furniture is going to be laid out, you know, it's just a bunch of things that you have to decide. You know, how big do you want the the platform to be <clears throat> how high you guys notice I say platform not stage I'm just big on terminology okay there's no entertainment that happens it's not a stage it's a platform okay it's a platform and how high do you want it to be just high enough for people to see that's it you don't want to be up here and everybody else down there it's a platform so you can see so you go into our auditorium and that's what you got a platform that's kind of not very tall on purpose, just so people can see. But then there is, where are you going to put the altar? And here's the thing. <laughs> you don't really have to worry about that. Because forgive the grammar, there ain't no altar. In fact, I've got good news for you. <laughs> if you ever, if you're not married and you ever plan on getting married and you're worried about being left at the altar, <laughs> don't worry. Because <laughs> there ain't no altar. Okay? Now, why is there no altar? Because what do you do on an altar? And the sacrifice is done. So the closest thing we have to an altar is a cross. And that's simply for us to remember the sacrifice that's already been done. That's right. So that, that means then there are no further sacrifices that are taking place. Now, let me bring that to... Something that I, I'm not trying to be unnecessarily offensive. I'm just trying to 
trying to tell you what the good news of the gospel is, that the sacrifice has been made and now is yours to receive. And there is no other sacrifice that can be made. To complete that, to improve on that, it is finished, said Jesus from the cross. But not everybody believes that. In fact, not most people believe it. Most people don't believe it. Even many Christian denominations don't teach that, incredibly. But that's the heart of the good news. That Jesus has done what you couldn't do, and what I couldn't do. So, in Roman Catholicism, if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic Eucharist, and seen the observance of Mass, uh, do you know what's happening with Mass? So the priest holds up a the host, the bread, and he prays and he consecrates the host. And in something that the Roman, Roman Catholic Church calls transubstantiation, that's the term, transubstantiation. Trans means change. <coughs> substance. The substance changes. Transubstantiation. And the substance of the bread changes when he prays. When he consecrates that bread... That bread changes to the body of Jesus. And when he holds up the cup and he consecrates the cup, that wine changes to the blood of Jesus. And then Jesus is re-crucified. And Jesus is re-crucified for the sins that you committed in the interval between the last now and the last time you observed Mass. Now, if you're thinking for a minute, you're going, wow, you know, what happens if my sins aren't covered by the latest Mass? In other words, if I go to Mass on Sunday or Saturday night or whenever, and then I go and commit, in Roman Catholicism, a mortal sin, and I die before I get to go to Mass again, what happens to me? Well, here's what happens to you. Not purgatory. You know, this is, do not pass go. <laughs> go directly to jail, okay? You, you don't, it's not purgatory. It's hell. If you have a mortal sin on your account, what are mortal sins? Those are, according to Roman Catholicism, big. Um, so murder would be a mortal sin. If you... If, if someone committed suicide, now you, you've got a murder on your account and no opportunity to have that atoned for. So in Roman Catholicism, suicide is automatic help. Did you know that? Yes. Automatic help. Okay, so that's Roman Catholicism. That's the Mass. That's the re-crucifixion of Jesus. But then you've got, I grew up in a church, a Pentecostal church, but we believed you could lose your salvation. So contrary to what the Bible teaches, namely when you come to Christ believing who he is and what he did, he gives you the gift of eternal life. Contrary to that, we believed that you were given life on probation. Depends on how well you do. 
So you come to Christ and your sins in the past are covered. Your sins in the future, we'll see how you do. Really. This is why as a, as a teenager, as a, as a 10-year-old, I was tormented. It was hard for me to sleep at night, really. I would have late-night conversations with my mom. My dad died when I was 11, so it was my poor mom who had to have these late-night conversations with me. Well, hey, you know, how many sins do you have to commit? Because I've been counting, <laughs> you know, before you lose it. And my dear mom, there's no answer to this. And so it was, it was, it was a real torment. And we had in our Pentecostal church an altar. And we would have what are called, anybody heard this? Altar calls. So you're called to come forward to the altar. Well, see, it makes sense in a system like that that you have an altar, right? Because you still you still got to have something done here. So weekly, I would go forward. Most people would go forward. And this was kind of our version of Mass. You have to go forward. Go to the altar. And I would have, once I started, as I got my older teens through reading the Bible, and also the fact that I, my mom made the mistake of sending me to a Baptist high school. <laughs> and she told me when I went, look, I'm sending you there because I don't want you to go to the public school in our town. But don't listen to what they tell you in Bible class. <laughs> and I said, don't worry, I won't. <laughs> and, and then I came out a non-Pentecostal at, at age 19. But in, in working through all of that, I would sometimes have discussions, debates with my friends who were in our Pentecostal church. And they would explain it this way to me, that the reason you go to the altar is so that you can get your sins that you committed put, and this is the phrase that we use, put under the blood. So do you understand that when you come to Jesus, do you know how many sins that you've committed or will commit are under the blood? You know how many? That would be all of them. See, that's the beauty. It's all of them. And when people come to our church to join, and we have a membership interview, we have a one-page application, and we say things like, who do you believe Jesus is? And I want to make sure that they understand Jesus is God. And what do you believe Jesus has done? That's the second question. And they will often say, rightly, that he's died for our sins. And then I say, that's good. And you also know that he lived for you in addition to dying for you. And that his absolutely righteous life is applied to you when you come to God through Christ. So not only did he pay the penalty in his death, but his righteous life is given to you as well. So that now God looks at you through the perfection of Jesus, not through your messed up sin. And you know that on the cross, when he died, he paid the penalty for your sins, past, present, and future. It's that future piece that people really got to get. Because if you don't get the future piece, then you've got to have some mechanism for you to keep it or keep it up. Right? So, it's... Contrary to what I was taught when I was a kid, that you go to the altar and you pray to get it put under the blood. When you come to the altar and the sacrifice of Christ, then it is all placed under the blood. And there will be no sin 
for the child of God, who will then that will then sever that relationship. So I'm telling you all of this because I want you, as you read the, as we go through this, and you read the first part of your Bible, think about how that connects forward to the one story that God is telling in the Bible that is pointing us to the ultimate solution of, for sin that comes through the seed of the woman, none other than Jesus. All right, back to page five. Israel received the law and the plans for the, the tabernacle. And then Israel wandered in the wilderness. The Israelites proceeded north to a city just south of Canaan called Kadesh Barnea. And there they sent the 12 spies to take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. When the spies returned, two said, we should by all means go and take possession. The rest said, we're not able to go against these people. They're too strong. Consequently, the Israelites decided not to go. God condemned them to wandering for 40 years. Everyone 20 years and older at the time of that decision died during the wilderness wandering. Okay, so let's stop here for a minute. Do you guys remember how many people we said that is? It's about 1.2 million. 1.2 million who are wandering for 40 years and all except two of the 1.2 million die during that 40 years. So you have a psalm, a psalm in your Bible. There's the book of Psalms, plural, because there are 150 of them. So the book is called Psalms, plural. But if you're looking at a particular one of those, it's psalm singular. Okay, so just a pet peeve. There's there's not Psalms 23. Because there's only one of them. Okay, so it's Psalm 23. Okay. Revelations. Revelations, exactly. Okay. Revelation, no S on the end, all right? All right. So Psalm 90. Of the 150 Psalms in that book, most of those Psalms are written by David, King David. And they'll say at the top, a Psalm of David. Most of them. Of 150, you've got exactly one written by none other than Moses. And it's Psalm 90. And it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing to me uh, that you have this one psalm written by Moses, apparently toward the end of his life. And, and I say apparently because of what he says in the psalm, 17 verses in that psalm. And in the middle of in the middle of it, just past the middle of it, in verse twelve of Psalm ninety, there's this famous verse where uh, Moses writes to the up to the Lord, prays to the Lord, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's Psalm ninety and verse twelve, but it comes from Moses. Now, why would Moses? really care at the end of his life in this prayer to the Lord to say, teach us to number our days. But here's why. Because during the 40 years that he's leading these people in the wilderness, Moses becomes a bit of an expert on death. Why? Because 1.2 million people die over a 40-year period. 
And so he says that in the middle. That's the key verse of that psalm. Teach us to number our days aright. But in the, in the midst of the psalm, he says our days are three score and ten. It says in the King James Version, 70 on average. But we're only here for 70 years. If that, he says. But you, Lord, are from everlasting to everlasting. And compared to you and eternity, we just have this little sliver of time. And I know it better than anybody because I've seen all these people die. And so in verses, verse 3, he says, You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. Now just think about being Moses. You've seen all these people die. You're at the end of your life, man. What are you thinking? I'm praying a prayer. He's praying this prayer for the next generation. That they'll know how to number their days rightly because they don't have many of them. And he says, You return us to dust. Now, let's do the math on how many deaths that is. 1.2 million over 40 years is an average of 30,000 deaths each year. Now, it wasn't even like this, I understand, because there were some mass executions (laughs) as you go through it. So it's not even, but if you just do averages, you have 30,000 a year, and 30,000 a year comes out to about 83 a day. And 83 a day comes out to about three or four every hour. And three or four every hour comes out to one about every 15, 20 minutes. And he says in verse 4 of that psalm, does Moses, a thousand years in your sight, Lord, are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. And in verses 4 and 5, he gives these, these three metaphors, these three pictures of the brevity of, of life. First, from God's perspective, a thousand years is like a single day. So if somebody lives an extraordinarily long life, he might reach a hundred years. Or one-tenth of one thousand. But, but from God's standpoint, that's like one day. But you're only getting one-tenth of that. So you're getting one-tenth of one day, like two and a half hours. That's what your life is like. From an eternal perspective, he's saying your life is like two and a half hours. But it's worse than that because he goes on to say, or our lives are like a watch in the night. And in that culture, watchmen worked in shifts to guard the city's gates from attack. And the typical watchman's shift was three hours. But remember, our lives are only one-tenth. So our lives are more like 18 minutes from an eternal perspective. So Andy Warhol said, everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. And God says, everybody gets their 15 minutes of life. But it's worse than that. He gives these three. You know, the one is, you know, a day is like a, a thousand years and or a watch in the night, but then he says, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. So that just gives you the momentary nature of our existence. The word that's translated sweep is sometimes wash, and it pictures a tide washing on shore. So if you've ever been on the shore of the ocean and you see the tide come in and then go out, as you stand there, you've got sand and seaweed and seashells. 
And then the tide comes in and goes back out, and you've got, just in one wash, you've got new sand, new seaweed, new seashells. And next time you're at the ocean and you see that happen, God says that's what your life is like. Momentary, and it's gone. And that's why then he says, teach us to number our days. All right. Sobering, isn't it? I mean, if you live to be 70, if you live to be 90, it's still very momentary compared to eternity. And, of course, we have no guarantee that we'll live to any of that, do we? So I don't need to make all the application, and I won't give the altar call, okay, on what for you to do with that, but to ponder the seriousness of the time that God has given us to carry out what he's given us to do. All right, back to page five. One of the reasons I wanted to share that with you is one to sober us about our brev- the brevity of life, but also to show you the connection between this history and the first five books of the Bible. And then you go to a book, the book of Psalms, and there's Moses showing up. Okay, And we're going to see as we go through that this history of the people of Israel and of David and, and the nation and all of that, that that's all going to come into play in all of these books that comprise the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. So number five on page five. Moses passes from the scene. All of these people die, except Joshua and Caleb. All of them die not able to go into the land that God had said 40 years earlier for them to take. All of them die. None of them get to see the promised land. Moses is not able to go into the land. Moses dies before they go in. Only these two who originally 40 years earlier had said, let's go in and do what God said. Those two make it to the promised land. And the mantle of leadership then for the nation passes from Moses to Joshua. So now we've moved from the first five books of your Bible that were written by Moses to the sixth book, Joshua. And it's named after now this leader and this one who 40 years earlier had obeyed God and said, let's go in. And now he's taken the mantle of leadership from from uh, from Moses. So number five, after the, the 40 years, the Israelites conquered the east side of the Jordan River. Then Moses gave a long speech, probably the book of Deuteronomy, and he died. And next, God appointed Joshua to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River where they conquered Jericho, Ai, and most of the land of, of Canaan. So I'd like to recount that story for you fairly briefly. So Joshua is now leading the people. They are on the uh, east side of the the Jordan, and they are going to cross the Jordan into the promised land. But they send spies in to check out what they need to do. Now, this is important. They're not making that mistake again. Okay? These spies, especially with Joshua leading them, he was one of the spies 40 years earlier, so he's not saying, hey, go and see if we should do what God wants us to do. Okay? No, these spies are going in to just figure out how to do it. And in particular, they're looking at this fortified city that they will encounter immediately upon crossing the Jordan, Jericho. So they go, they swim, 
across, and they come back with uh, with their report. So the spies the spies go in, but when the spies are there, they meet a woman named Rahab. Now, who's Rahab? She's a prostitute, but she's she's been a prostitute, but she's become a believer. In fact, in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Joshua 2, 9 through 11, you have Rahab talking to these Israelite spies and saying, we've heard about you guys. And in fact, we've been quaking in our boots, (laughs) worried that you were going to show up. You guys were scared before when in fact we were afraid of you. And we've been afraid of you ever since. And I, for one, and my family, believe that your God is going to do what he said. And now here you are. And so I ask you this. When your God takes this city, will you spare me and my family? And they they do that. All of the inhabitants of Jericho are killed, except Rahab and her family. So here's a pagan woman who had been a prostitute that God calls. Now, Rahab will show up again later. In fact, Rahab will actually, believe it or not, she'll become like prominent in the line that produces Jesus. Rahab, the prostitute, who's not an Israelite, but someone outside that God, in his grace, spares. And they cross the Jordan. Now, as they cross the Jordan, remember the spies swam across. But now all these people are going to go across. So that would be quite a that would be quite a swim to watch. <laughs> but there's no swim. Because God allows them to go over on dry land. So this is the second time God has parted water. Now, why why is God parting the water? Well, one, to let them get across to state the obvious, but also to stamp his approval on the leadership of Joshua. God parted the waters of the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses. And now he's parting the waters of the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua for them to go across. Because, undoubtedly, there would be some people, it always happens, okay, when I get kicked out of our church being pastor here, which could happen at any time. But, you know, it it happens in churches. I see it all the time. You have a person who's been around for a long time. They get older. They retire or die. And then you get a younger guy come in, and you've got a whole group of people going, does he know what he's doing? You know, the old man knew what he was doing. Okay? And so you're going to have some people wonder, does he know? Can Can he lead like, can he really lead like Moses can? And so the parting is a, is, a, is a sign from God of God's stamp of approval on, on the leadership of Joshua. That when they cross, there are three memorials that they uh, implement. There are two stone um, memorials. The stones are 12 in number, 12 stones. They take 12 stones from the bed of the Jordan. And they erect just this small memorial of 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes. And they build one right in the middle of the Jordan. Mm. Now, when the waters 
recede, then this is going to be covered. But on the west side, on the other side, they build another. A visible reminder that God opened the waters for them to, to cross. And again, one stone for each of the each of the twelve. So that's the first of the three memorials, these two stone altars. Um, or these two stone memorials. And then the other memorial is circumcision. That all of the men are circumcised in obedience to what God had told Abraham a long time ago. Now, think about this. Weren't these guys already supposed to be? They were, and they're not. So what does that tell you? This is one of the reasons that these people had so much trouble for 40 years. You read about their 40-year wandering, and they are constantly sinning against God and disobeying God. And they're murmuring, that's the King James word, complaining against the leadership and against God. You know, Moses brings us out here into the wilderness and the food is lousy. You know, it's manna every stinking day. They complain about the food. They complain about Moses complaining. So I love to remind church people of that. Complaining against the leadership could get you killed. It's a little warning between me, you, and God, okay? But they... But they do that, and, and this explains why they haven't been circumcised. They're, they're disobedient people. This is the very reason that they're spending 40 years wandering to, to begin with. It also explains why Moses has to, in his waning years, as they're ready to go in, and he's not going to go in with them, but he has to remind them of the law and remind them that when they go in, you're to keep the law. And that's why you have the book of Deuteronomy, second law. Moses repeating the law in preparation for these people to go in because they haven't been keeping it. And then the third memorial is Passover. In Joshua chapter 5, they celebrate Passover. And remember what Passover is. The first Passover was God's instruction when... With a mighty hand, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and he said, "The firstborn uh, of Egypt is going to be is going to be killed in the tenth and final plague." And how are the Israelite children going to be spared? It's by putting blood upon the doorpost. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Thus, the name Passover. And again, this all points to who? This all points to Christ. In fact. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians 10, 5 in your New Testament says this, Christ is our Passover. Because God passes over your sin due to the blood of blood of Christ. Uh, someone's having trouble with the connection. Which is God's discipline upon you. We're trying to make a phone call. Very glass. Can you repeat that yeah, way. yeah, that someone's having trouble with a connection. <laughs> <laughs> this is God's discipline. No, repeat what? Oh, 1 Corinthians 10.5. Christ is our Passover. Christ is our Passover. So they go in, they go across, there's these memorials, and they take Jericho. You remember how they took Jericho without firing a shot or any of that, and you know, uh, or, or having to do anything with weapons. 
other than march around. And, and, and part of the reason that the inhabitants of Jericho were such easy prey is because of what Rahab had already said. Contrary to what the Israelites had thought, these people were scared to death. They had heard about their reputation already. They had already conquered places on the east side of, of the Jordan. They had heard about them, so one of the reasons was that they were in fear, and then they hear all this calamity going on. You remember all this noise on the seventh day of marching around the walls? All right, and then the next city is a small city, Ai. So they conquered Jericho marvelously by God's direct intervention. <clears throat> and now they move on to this little town called Ai. And here's what they do. Instead of all of the fighting men going, they decide, <laughs> uh, you know, let's just send 3,000. We just we just demolished Jericho. Now notice, we, we demolished Jericho. <laughs> Who demolished Jericho? But let's just take 3,000. Let's have a contingent, a task force <laughs> go in. We'll wait till they get back. So they send this contingent, and 36 of them die. And they're unable to take Ai, the small town. Now, there are two reasons that they're unable to take it. One, God had told them, you take all the fighting men in. They didn't. They were cocky, and God is humbling them. Those 36 that they lost were the only lives that were lost in the campaigns in taking the towns in Canaan. But they lost 36 in that little town and didn't take it. So that's one reason they were they were prideful, they were they were cocky. But the other reason turns out that there's a guy among them, a guy named Achan, A C H A N, Achan. And Achan has disobeyed God by taking some bounty from Jericho. He wasn't supposed to take any, but he took some, and he hid it under his tent. So apparently his family is in on the plot, too, because it's hid under the tent. They must know about it, and the reason I say that is because ultimately when Aiken's found out, he's killed, as is his family. And sometimes people go, wow, the family? But the family was in on the plot, okay? So God says, you don't take it. So they get routed. They're wondering why they got routed. One, because they were prideful, but but secondly, because Achan, there's sin in the camp. And so God is going to reveal the sin. And the book of Joshua records that Joshua calls the people together, he divides them into tribes, and he goes tribe by tribe, and then he goes, you know, um, he goes um, um, ancestor by ancestor, head of each house, then he goes to, whittles it down to individual homes. And he's narrowing this down, and Achan is in each one of these. And as Joshua's calling it out and saying, the offender is, is here, and now let's whittle it, down, whittle it down further, at every point, Achan can go, hey, it was me. But it's not until it gets down to just a handful of people that finally Achan says, I have sinned, and he's identified. And as I say, he's, he's dealt with severely. He is, he is killed along with his family. Hey, do you um, do you guys think that sin, sin among God's people, affects other of God's people? So you know what you and I do doesn't just affect you, you, me. It affects other people. Sin has consequences beyond you, and that's one of the things that God is God is teaching here. 
All right, then they now, having gotten the sin out and having been humbled, they go in and then they rout Ai and they go on to uh, be victorious in the other cities that they go after. But here, this is important as we conclude. They don't go and take all of the cities. So we'll pick up there next week that they don't go and take all of the cities. They don't go and take the whole land. They take part of it. They're satisfied with that. And this becomes a huge problem for them as we go to the seventh book of the Bible, the book of Judges. And here's why. Because as you read through the book of Judges, here's one of the things you find. You find these people that they didn't go and conquer in the promised land giving them problems throughout the book of Judges. And, and God allows those people to give them problems as punishment for the fact that they were supposed to take these people to begin with. So they obeyed by going into the land. They took Jericho. They took Ai. They took other cities. But they didn't take the whole thing. And as a result, then, there's judgment. And that's recorded in one of the darkest books of the Bible, the seventh book, the book of Judges. All right? So we'll pick up there next week.